Welcome to Wednesday Word, a Bible study led by Pastor John Jenkins of Northport Baptist Church. Well, as you get your Bible, turn to Acts 9. We're going to go back to Acts 9. And of course, we started this last week, but Acts chapter 9 is one of the most truly important chapters in the Bible, and I say that a lot, but it truly is, especially if you're sitting in this room, because you're a product of Acts chapter 9. If you are not Jewish or of Jewish descent, the reason you have the gospel, the reason you know Jesus Christ is because of Acts chapter 9, because here in this chapter, God's appointed person to take the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, to the Gentiles is Saul, or who we know better as the Apostle Paul. And so this chapter not only changes one man's life, it changes millions and millions and millions of lives, and it will continue to change millions and millions of lives because of the impact not only the Apostle Paul had in the early church and in the early movement of Jesus Christ, but what he's had through the centuries, through writings and through all that he's done. So I told you last week out of the 27 New Testament books, Basically, Paul wrote half of them. He wrote 13 of them. So uh, just amazing what God did with his life. And truly, for me anyway, in Acts chapter 9, it's amazing to see how this one event in his life, how it shaped him and shaped the writings that he writes the rest of his ministry. And you can see so many examples of that from this chapter, what God did here and Paul's life, and then how he talks about it all through his ministry and all through his writings that the Holy Spirit inspires. And so we're just going to look at this a little bit more and a little bit more in depth, and we'll stay in chapter 9 probably this week and next week at least, at least maybe more than that. We'll just depend on how long it goes. But I just want you to see how impactful not only this was in Saul's life, but how impactful this was for you. Now, one thing I say a lot, and I say it a lot, especially because it's our context that we live in the southern part of the United States. Salvation is about one thing that we can see anyway, that we can manifest. Salvation, when some, someone receives Christ, Jesus Christ is the Lord of their life. Salvation is about life change. You're going to be different after receiving Jesus Christ as Lord than you were before you received Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay? You're going to be different. And if there is no difference, there is no salvation. Does that make sense? Okay, now while that is of huge and utmost importance where we live in our context in the South is because for so many that live in the South, Christianity, religion, whatever you want to say, is cultural. And you really don't see life change in their life at all. Okay, the reason they would claim to be a follower of Christ, the reason they would claim to be a member of a church, is because they were raised that way. Their parents were. It's just the acceptable thing to do in the South. Now, you go into the north, the northeast, the northwest, the west, guess what? You don't have that because nobody cares. Okay, but here, 
it means something to people. I guarantee you, you can go into Walmart, you can go into the grocery store, wherever you want to go to. And if you strike up a conversation with someone and you want to get to the gospel and you want to share Jesus with them, one thing never do is never ask them, do you go to church? Because they all go to church, even if they don't go to church. Do you know what I'm saying? They're at least associated with a church, <laughs> right? I get, There's no telling how many people come to Northport Baptist Church in Northport, Alabama. They've never been here, but this is their church. I mean, you just hear it all the time, and every church has that. Because somebody has been associated with a church, whether they went to a funeral at a church, or they went to an Easter service at a church, or Christmas, whatever it is, they're going to have a church, or they're going to tell you, yeah, we go to church, I go to Northport Baptist Church. Well, why have I never seen you there? Well, I mean, that leads to another conversation. But everybody, for the most part, in the South, now it's not as... It's not as much now as it was even 10 years ago, but for the most part, everybody in the church, everybody in the South is a Christian. They're going to claim to be a Christian. Now, where that makes it so difficult is sharing the gospel with them because they think they're saved. It's hard to share the gospel with somebody that they think they're okay. And I, and I know you don't believe this, but I'm telling you, it's either easier to go to a Muslim country and share the gospel of Christ there than it is in the South many times. Because at least if I go to a Muslim country, we're talking about difference between Islam and Christianity, between Allah and God, who Jesus Christ is, what I believe Jesus Christ is, what they believe Jesus Christ is. At least we can communicate there. But in the South, most people have enough biblical knowledge, they have enough association with a church or family members who are Christians to think that they're okay. They might have been baptized. They might have be truly a member of this church. They might have went to vacation Bible school or Sunday school. But how many of you know someone who claims or who says, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but their life does not exemplify it? Anybody? Don't lie. I mean, everybody in this room knows that, right? Well, I know a bunch of them, by the way, not just one or two. A bunch of them. <coughs> okay? I'm telling you, salvation is about life change. And if there is no life change, there is no salvation. Period. And you can tell all you want. Well, you're judgmental. Yeah, I'm judgmental. The Bible tells me to be judgmental. Does it not? How does Jesus Christ say, you will know my followers? You will know them by what? Their fruit. That's what he says. You will know them by their fruit. Well, can I not judge fruit? I can look at a tree and tell if it's an apple tree or an orange tree. Can I not? Can you not? Yeah. You should be able to or go get glasses, okay? But you can tell an apple and an orange. Well, if I look at a Christian and I see their life, should I not be able to see fruit from their life? I can judge that. Can I not? And if there is no fruit... According to Jesus Christ, what is there not? There ain't no salvation. Now understand you might not be the most fruitful tree in the grove all the time, but there still should be some fruit. And I'm telling you, there better be life change. Because if there is no life change, there is no salvation. One thing I know about Saul or the Apostle Paul is there was life change. Radical life change. And you see that in Acts chapter 9. 
And so I know we read this last week, but I want to talk about a few more things this week that we can't talk about last week. And this is the most wonderful thing about the Bible to me. I mean, we could talk about this a long time and God's going to reveal new things and more things every time. Why? Because his word is living. It's breathing. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's not dead. And the thing about this book, if you have Jesus Christ, who else do you have? The Holy Spirit. And what makes this book active and living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword? Only the Holy Spirit. If you don't have Jesus Christ, guess what? This is just words on a page. Without the Holy Spirit, this ain't no different than any other book. Truly not. Because the Holy Spirit is what... Number one, inspired this. But number two, when he's living and dwelling and living in you, he's the one that makes this a living, breathing word of God. So we could talk about this chapter all the time. I won't do that. I probably will a lot, but I won't do it forever. But we're going to talk about it today. So look at verse one. Let's just read a few verses because this is such an incredible story. Okay, verse one. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Ooh, okay. Let's talk about this a minute, because I know we mentioned it last week. But in English, the English is not as graphic here as the Greek. Okay, when it says Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers, the image there is of a rabid animal, kind of like a wolf that is showing his teeth, that's kind of got that guttural growl before they attack and crouch down. That's what this text is describing Saul as. So that's who he is. He is a rabid animal going to kill the followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, now why... Is he like that? What has turned this man into a vicious, wild animal, ready to kill people he doesn't even know? And now he has walked five days to Damascus to find people he has no clue who they are, but if they're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's going to find them and he's wanted to kill them. If he can't kill them, he's going to bring them back in chains to Jerusalem. What would make this man this way? I mean, to me, it's Satan. It's got to be Satan. And it's demonic for sure. Now, I don't know if Paul, Saul at this time was demon-possessed. He was basically demon-led if he wasn't demon-possessed. I think he might be demon-possessed at this point. And I think that's what makes Ephesians 6 so important in your Bible when we talk about spiritual warfare. But I want to get even deeper than that. Okay, why is Satan leading him to kill Christians? Okay, he wants, I mean, we know, we know who Satan is. We know what Satan does. He wants to stop Christ. He wants to stop the movement of the church and the spread of the gospel. But again, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to go even deeper. Let's get to the root of this. Why? Well, he wants to be God. I mean, that's why he rebelled in the first place. Isaiah tells us that. His pride, he really, we say he wanted to be God. He really doesn't want to be God. I think I told we talked to you this in Revelation. Do you know what he really wants to be? He wants to be like you. 
because we are made in the image of Almighty God. Okay? We are image bearers of God. Now, we know Satan's an angel. He's not an image bearer of God. Okay? He's an angel. Who are angels? According to God's Word, angels serve who? God created angels to serve us. Now, they serve Him too. He has special angels that do that, if you read the Bible, cherubim and seraphim. But angels, those lock, stock, and barrel angels serve us. Because Satan didn't like that. He don't want to serve you. He wants to be you. He wants to be like God. Well, who is like God? We're image bearers of God. We're the ones God created like Him. Now, that doesn't mean we're God. Don't take it too far. But we're like God. We're image bearers of God. Satan wants to be like us. Okay? So, he hates us, yes. But let's take it even further than that. This, I'm just telling you, this is about self-preservation for him. Acts chapter 9, the beginning of it, is self-preservation for Satan. Why do you think I say that? He knows what is coming. Okay, what is coming? His destruction. Okay, he is going to be destroyed. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis 3, when Satan tempted and when Adam and Eve sinned. God said something very specific to Satan. He said... Talking about offspring here, talking about Jesus. He says, Satan, you're going to do something to Jesus. You're going to bite. You're going to strike his what? Heel. You're going to strike his heel. You're going to wound him. Not a mortal wound, but you're going to wound him. But then he said something that Jesus is going to do to Satan. Going to crush his head. It's going to be a, a head wound, a fatal wound, right? Okay. Now, where was that going to take place? Where was that wound coming? The cross. Okay. But was that the kill shot? Now, it's a mortal fatal wound, but if I hit my head and fall and get a concussion and I start bleeding, I might die eventually from that wound, but I might not die immediately from that wound, right? Okay, that's what happened to Satan on the cross. Who's going to take Satan out? Ooh, turn to Revelation 12. <laughs> 12. Okay, I want you to see this. We don't want to miss this because this is going to be important the rest of the book of Acts. Okay, Revelation 12, you there? Look at verse 10. Okay, this is, of course, John talking here. The Apostle John says, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last. Okay, now what has come? What God said in Genesis 3. That's a long time ago, right? We don't even know when this is. It's going to take place sometime in our future. It has come at last. Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ or Messiah. Okay, keep going. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Now, who is that? That's Satan, right? We know what does Satan do? He accuses us. Later on it says before day and night, before God. Now, what did he do to Job? If you go to the book of Job, what does Satan do? He has access to God's throne. He accuses Job, right? He does that for you and me, by the way. 
He's the accusers of brothers and sisters in Christ. But what has happened to him? He has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses before God both day and night, that's Satan. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Now, who defeated him? They did. Who's they? Brothers and sisters who he accuses day and night. Okay, so if you are a brother or a sister in Jesus Christ, you are going to be the ones to defeat Satan. And how do we defeat Satan? By the blood of the Lamb. Where did that come from? The cross, right? Where Jesus shed His blood. Okay, so why do you think Satan wants to kill brothers and sisters in Christ? <clears throat> He's smart, that's why. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to be thrown into the pit that was created for him. That's who hell was created for. All the angels that rebelled according to the book of Revelation. This is just self-preservation. So he found a man that he can lead, and his name is Saul. And he turns this man into a wild, vicious animal going around killing and destroying brothers and sisters in Christ. Self-preservation. And guess what he does all the way through? He tries to self-preserve. You know what he turns his attention to after Acts chapter 9? Do you know who he wants to kill? Not the one killing. I mean, he wants Paul killed at this point. I mean, he shipwrecks him. He has him thrown into jail. He has him stoned. He has him beaten with rods and beaten with whips. He wants him to die. He'll use anything he can to save his hide. He is no respecter of persons. It's just self-preservation. So that's what Acts chapter 9 is about. And that's what he's using Saul to do, to kill brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is what Saul did. He went to the high priest and we talked about Annas last week. Annas, this is not talking about Caiaphas. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He is the main dude in charge. And he is so powerful that Saul goes to him and says, hey, I'm going to Damascus. That is not Israel. That is Samaria. That is 140 miles away. But he gets a letter from the most powerful man in Israel, Annas. And why does he need that letter? Because this letter gives him authority to do whatever he wants to do. Saul can do anything he wants to do in Damascus. Do you see the reach of this man named Annas? He is a powerful dude. And he gets what he wants, even from the Roman Empire. He gets what he wants. That's what verse 2, he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. And of course, that comes from John 14, 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we're followers of the way. We follow the way, Jesus. He wanted, now this is interesting. We need to look at this. He wanted to bring them both, men and women, back to Jerusalem in Chains. Okay, now this is very interesting here too. Does the Bible before this point really mention men and women together in the same breath, in the same context? Okay, think about it like this. Think about when Jesus fed the 5,000. You realize there's a whole lot more than 5,000, right? It was 5,000 men. Men. 
Okay, there were women there too. There were children there too that Jesus fed. So we don't know how many people he fed, 10, 15, who knows, 20,000, depending on how many kids were there, women were there. But in the Bible, Old Testament, even through the Gospels, when it talks about men and women, numbers them, anything, it's always only talking about men. But not here. Both men and women alike, he wants to bring back to Jerusalem in chains. <coughs> Why? Well, I, I mean, now I, there's some of this speculation, okay, but Jesus changed this, okay? Think about just some of the stories of Jesus. Jesus doesn't focus on men, right? John chapter 8, okay, the woman called in adultery. Earlier in John, the woman at the well. Think about the story of Jesus being anointed with perfume and oil two different times in the Bible. Was that a man? That was a woman. Okay, at the cross, who was there at the cross? Only one man. I mean, there were more men, but from a follower standpoint, John was it. Everybody else was women at the cross. At the tomb, who were the first people at the tomb? Women were the first people at the tomb. So Jesus changed the narrative here. He changed the story. And then throughout the book of Acts, throughout Paul's life, I mean, who's one of the prominent things he does? One of the prominent things he does is minister to women. The Philippian church, how does that start? Because of a woman. Okay, so we just see this is just, I mean, we just glance over stuff like this and we don't even think about it. This is where this changes. Okay? Now we're brothers and sisters, not just brothers. It's brothers and sisters in Christ. And who defeats Satan? Brothers and sisters in Christ. They defeat him. It ain't just men going out and fighting. You're fighting too, ladies. So I'm liberal here, so you can go to war. But spiritual war, how about that? But it is important. Okay, and not only is that important, think about this. He wants to bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, who are these people in Damascus? If you read earlier in Acts, what happens after Stephen is stoned? Persecution comes on the church, and the church is scattered. Many of them are scattered to Samaria, to Damascus. So Paul's going to get them, bring them back home so they can stand trial, so they can get what they deserve. And he's bringing them back in chains. But this is what happens. We want to talk about life change. Verse 3. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission. Isn't that an interesting way to describe what he's doing? Now, what do we talk about? We talk about missions all the time. I love missions. I talk about missions all the time. But you realize you can have a different mission. You know, we have, we talked about churches being disunified. Uh, you realize there's people that has a mission to destroy the church. They might not know that, but they still destroy the church and they still destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ out of that church. There's a lot of them in the church. We could talk about that all day. But all missions aren't good missions, okay? But as he was going on his mission to kill, Jesus Christ did something. It says, A light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground... And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Okay, let's just talk about this light and this voice for a moment. Okay, if you think about this, there's another time in the Bible something very similar to this happens where someone sees a light and they hear a voice, but there's no one there. You got to go back to the Old Testament. But where did this happen? In the life of who? Life of Moses. And what was Moses doing? He was on the backside of a Midian desert, basically wishing he could die. I mean, he was, God can't, yeah, I'm done, I got to leave, whatever. He was a prince. Now he's basically tending some flock. But God speaks to him, and how does he speak to him? In that burning bush. Out of that burning bush. And he sees that light, he sees that fire, and he walks up to him, and what does he hear? He hears a voice. And what does God do? He raises Moses up to go save his people, right? The Israelites in bondage in Egypt. What does God do here? Same thing. He raises someone up to go and share the saving message of Jesus Christ to his people, right? It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. And so, I mean... I say this all the time, but God doesn't change. God doesn't even change His methods, right? Okay, so when people tell you about the book of Acts, or they tell you, well, God doesn't do miracles anymore. Mm-hmm. Bullarchy. The Bible never says that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it never says that. And to come to that point through a theological spectrum is garbage. Don't listen to that. God says in the book of Acts and in the book of Joel, He's going to do again what He did right here in the book of Acts. He says, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on both young and old, men and women alike. And He's going to do signs. He's going to do wonders. Guess what a miracle is? It's a sign. And you know what's a sign of? The power of God. And it points people to Jesus. That's what a miracle is. And to say that God doesn't do that is to say, well, God changes. Well, how do you say that biblically? You have to go contrary to the Bible to say that. God is not going to change. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And He is going to do what He's always done and exactly what He says He's going to do. And yes, He still performs miracles. And yes, He still sends signs and wonders. And guess what? He can still speak from heaven if He wants to. So don't... Listen to anybody that says God will never speak to you. God speaks sometimes through His Holy Spirit. The vast majority of time, yes, it's out of His Word. But God still speaks. Okay, You will have certain theologians and certain guys that lean a certain way that they read the Bible to say God never speaks except through His Word. (coughs) Balarchy because God doesn't change. And God spoke here, right? And he tells us he's going to speak again to you and to me and to Christians and to believers. So just remember that as we keep going. But verse 5. Why are we hearing that God doesn't speak? Yes. Okay, I'll tell you why. But, uh, and this, and <laughs> I, I will get into a good argument about this, but uh, probably not in this room, but I would get into this argument with a lot. Uh, Okay, you have a theological stance. 
And it comes from a theological system, Reformed theology. Okay? Probably most of you would know it as Calvinistic theology. But this is what our Southern Baptist seminaries are teaching, by the way. Okay? And they're teaching that God doesn't speak. They're teaching that God only speaks through the Bible. They're teaching that God doesn't do miracles. They're saying that ceased with the apostles. It's garbage. Okay, but it comes from a place of wanting to stay close to God's Word. I mean, that's the play. It, it's not a bad thing. They really do want to stay to God's Word, and they don't... It, it, I mean, it comes out of yeah. basically the schisms where you have one schism that takes things too far from feelings and emotion, and they take the Bible way out of context. But then you have another schism, which this would be this schism, that become legalistic about it. Okay? Well, the Bible is not written in schisms. The Bible is written to keep you tethered to the Bible. That's the way the Bible's written. Okay? Because the Bible often even seems contradictory in and of itself, right? I mean, it does. It says things and says, well, that doesn't make sense because right there it says something else. Right there it says something else. And so there's a theological system, and you have some very prominent people like John MacArthur that would preach this and would preach that God doesn't heal people, God doesn't perform miracles, God only speaks out of His Word, and He is very much out of that Reformed theological class. Well, all our seminaries, Southern Baptist seminaries for the most part, lean towards that teaching. Al Mohler is very reformed in his theology. Danny Aiken is very reformed in his theology. The New President of Southwestern Seminary is very reformed in his theology. They all are. And that's what they're teaching, and that's what our guys coming out of seminary believe. And it's not biblical. And they will use, <coughs> I, don't, I don't want to say it like this, but auxiliary text like out of Corinthians, and it's not even talking about gifts. It's not even talking about signs. not even talking about wonders. But they'll say, see, that's what God did. He ceased that. Well, that's not what the Bible's talking about there. But it's stopping, quenching the Holy Spirit of God. It's what it's doing. And it's garbage. And it's just as unhealthy as the guys preaching on the other schism. And... Some things you get out of Pentecostalism, and out of that Pentecostalism, you got Joel Osteen and health and wealth and speak it and name it and claim it and all this other garbage. Well, that stuff is not biblical. But guess what? Neither is this biblical. And that's why you better stay tied to the Word of God and tethered to the Word of God rather than reading the Word of God through the eyes of man. Don't do that. And... I'm telling you, I, I mean, I do, I read commentaries, I read people, but that is not the primary thing I do because I do not want that to taint what I read out of God's Word. And I'm just telling you, it taints it because for the most part, we read the Bible through the view of man rather than the view of God because people don't know the Bible. If you want the best commentary on the Bible, do you know what it is? The Bible. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Don't let a man interpret the Bible for you. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. That's why I try to preach the Bible, and I try to show you verses that point to what we're talking about in the book of Acts. And, I mean, we could do this a long time in Acts chapter 9. Because we, right after this verse, Paul calls Jesus Lord. He don't even know who he is, but he calls him Lord. Okay, we can talk about lordship 
all the way through the Bible, and I could point you to bazillion verses, Old Testament, New Testament, why that's so important, even in Paul's writing. Okay, go read Philippians 2 if you want to go read Philippians 2. Okay, one day Jesus Christ, every knee's going to bow, and what are they going to bow and say? He's Lord. He is Lord. We didn't believe it, but now we believe it because we see Him. He's come. It's too late at that point because you got to confess Jesus as Lord. Romans 10, 9, if you want to be saved. So there's so many places we can talk about what God's Word, how it interprets it. In a minute, Saul's going to be blinded here. Does Saul talk about blindness in his writing? Go read 2 Corinthians 4. He talks about Satan. You know what Satan does? He's blinded the eyes of unbelievers. But guess what? Who else does that too? Who else blinds the eyes of unbelievers? Go read John 12. God does. Okay, we might talk about that next week because that's pretty important. Okay, well, where does that come out of? Well, why does God blind Saul for three days? There's a reason for it. Okay, well, who interprets that? Well, let me interpret it for you. I think, no, let the Bible interpret that for you. Don't let man interpret the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to preaching because you are supposed to listen to preaching, but you better be careful of the preaching you're listening to. Because I hear preaching all the time. I'm like, where the crap did they get that? I don't know. But be careful who you listen to and listen to people who preach the Word of God and only preach the Word of God and not John Calvin. Okay? Because Calvin wrote more words than the Bible. He wrote a bunch of them. Go read the Institutes. They're horrible. I mean, I had to study that in seminary. They're really good, but they're awful to read. They're horrible because they're so long. But don't listen to the teaching of man unless that man is speaking the Word of God and speaking for God. And how do I speak for God when I speak His Word? That's how you do it. And we don't teach that. And that's one of the problems we have with pastors coming out of seminaries today. So we got a big problem. Well, we got a big problem too, because y'all, we're never going to get through Acts chapter 9. Because <laughs> I was going to get way down further than this today. That's okay. It is okay. It's good. I mean, it's good to understand God's Word and to just unpack God's Word. And so you know God's Word. Because I'm telling you, Paul, that apostle, Shorty, that's his nickname. That's what Paul means, Paulus. He's an important guy. And we're going to see him for a long time in the book of Acts, but you're also going to see him the rest of the New Testament. So I know I'm late. Let me pray, and we'll talk about more next week. Thanks for joining us today. Tune in next week as John continues the discussion. And if you're interested in more, check us out at northportbaptist.org.